This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 96. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. One resource that I check out every year is Money Sense's Best ETFs in Canada Guide. They bring on a panel of experts to find Canada's top ETFs for index investors. And I found this guide extremely helpful when I was first getting started in investing. And now, many years later, I still read it when it gets updated annually just to be in the know of what's happening when it comes to index investing in Canada and to stay up to date on any significant changes like the updated fees, new ETF offerings, and any changes to existing top ETFs that you and I have in our portfolio already. Now, this podcast interview is different than you just reading the written version of the guide because we actually do a deep dive on the different ETFs that are in the guide. Definitely check out the written version of the guide as well, especially since it has some really useful tables that nicely summarize what the top ETFs are in the different categories. But definitely still listen to this interview as the writer of the Money Sense Guide is on the show today to dive deeper into the findings along with one of the top panelists and experts, Ben Felix from PWL Capital, to provide his analysis on the different top ETFs. You can check out the written version of the guide over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash moneysense. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash moneysense. And that link will just take you to the guide directly on the MoneySense site. And feel free to use that to follow along as a visual supplement when you're listening to this episode. An important thing to mention is that this guide doesn't actually drastically change from year to year. And so even though this recording was based on Money Sense's top 2022 ETFs guide, a majority of the ETFs and topics discussed would still be highly relevant in 2023 and beyond, as it's not like the underlying goal and structure of each ETF changes from year to year. And every year that we do this, there are certain ETFs that we especially deep dive on and the ETFs that we choose for this change from year to year. And so you don't want to miss out on that analysis, even if you end up listening to this episode in 2023. Now, if you enjoy these types of episodes or have been enjoying the podcast in general, please leave a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps other Canadians discover the podcast, and it helps me with bringing on top-notch guests for you so that we can all learn from them. Apple Podcasts makes it really easy to leave a rating, but if you're using Spotify, you have to click on the show within your Spotify app and then scroll to the very top to leave a star rating. It's right below the show description. It literally takes seconds and really helps support the show, so thank you in advance for that. And now, let's get into the interview. All right, gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. So Brian, can you start by telling us about your background as well as this annual initiative led by Money Sense to determine the best ETFs in Canada? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I'm Brian Borzakowski. I'm a longtime business journalist. I actually got my start. I was a music journalist first, then got my start at advisor.ca, but worked at Money Sense in 2000, between 2008 and 2010, Money Sense and Canadian Business. I helped I don't know if it helped launch the first website or redid the website I'm on WordPress, which is where the beginning of where it is kind of now. So that was exciting. And I've written for Money Sense kind of throughout my career. It's probably the longest publication you know that I've worked for. I had a column in it for a while until things got way too busy and I couldn't keep up the pace. But 
maybe one day again. Um, I've written for the New York Times, CNBC, BBC, all sorts of different places, investing, personal finance, and all kinds of things. And now I run my own content agency called All Caps Content, where we work with companies to create editorial style content for their clients and for other people. So that's me. I also have three kids and I actually live in Winnipeg, Manitoba these days. Used to live in Toronto for a long time. And with the money sense, so Jonathan Chevreau had done this for a very long time. And, you know, he's the personal finance guru, was editor of Money Sense. And he asked me this year to take it over. He was finally, I guess, retiring from this job and asked me to help out. And so that's how I stepped in to work on ETFs. I should also say I'm the co-author of ETFs for Canadians for Dummies, which actually there's a new edition out right now, I think, when this airs. And so I know a little bit about ETFs and have covered the ETF market extensively for, for years. So that's, I think, why he turned to me to help out with this. That's awesome. Yeah, we had John last year, Ben and I, and John, the three of us did it. Yeah, Money Sense obviously does this every single year. So it's nice to get an update. So yeah, so it's nice to see. I guess John finally retired. <laughs> <He's> partially. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have trouble believing he fully retired. He's probably still yeah, he, he never retires fully, <laughs> yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> for sure. That sounds good. Yeah. So just for all the listeners, all the viewers, this interview, it's going to go in depth on the top ETFs in Canada guide that Money Sense publishes annually. And now this talk, it's going to be part of this year's Canadian Financial Summit. And it will also be on my podcast, which is called the Build Wealth Canada podcast. So whether you're viewing it on the podcast or at the summit, if you want to follow along, you can go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash top ETF. And that will basically automatically redirect you to the Money Sense page where you can see the full list and all the tickers of the ETFs that we're talking about today. So if you're watching this at the Canadian Financial Summit, then you'll also see the link right below this video. So you can just click on that. And again, you can also follow along by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash top ETF, all one word. And then that will just redirect you to the Money Sense page. Then you'll see kind of like a nice table with everything that Brian and the team there put together. So it's nice and digestible. But this format's really nice because we get to really dive even deeper into why these ETFs were chosen as the top ones and sort of the more sort of nitty gritty details about it help you make a better decision for yourself if you choose to invest in any one of them. But before we get into that, Ben, can you tell us a bit about your background and the work that you do? Yeah. Brian did such a good job introducing himself. I'm going to sound less exciting. <laughs> I've got four kids though. Well, okay. You beat me there. <laughs> I guess I'm slacking with my two. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a portfolio manager and the head of research at PWL Capital, which is a Canadian wealth management firm. We use low-cost total market funds like index funds to build portfolios for clients. So yeah, I guess I know a bit about that. We've got a podcast to talk about this stuff on there. And your very famous YouTube channel as well? I don't know if it's very famous. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And it's fantastic. So anyways, just wanted to throw that in too. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. That's great. And yeah, we're going to link out to everything below the video if you are watching it on the summit. And if you're consuming this through the podcast, then we'll have everything in the show notes as well with all the links. But also, just before we dive right into it, I did want to do a bit of a disclaimer, and that is that the investor should still do your own research, still do your own due diligence, treat this information as helpful tips and education, and not as a substitute for an investment professional that's actually familiar with your specific situation. So obviously, you know, do the work to do all of that. And with that said, let's get into it. So Brian, how does voting work among the panelists before an ETF is admitted as one of the top ETFs in Canada? Right. Okay. That's yeah, the probably the most important question here. So we have teams, there are eight judges and they're in teams of two. So people working from the same organization and 
essentially we have a list of ETF starting from the previous year's list. Now, you know, the market doesn't change that much. There are lots of interesting additions, but maybe we can get into later as to kind of what things aren't included. But we have this list and again, based off last year's, and then we ask people if they want to have any additions and some people make recommendations and then we kind of add it to, to the list. So you have a full list of different kinds of ETFs in different categories. And then the judges work together and their teams to decide on what should make the cut. What should we vote for? And we have a spreadsheet. And in the spreadsheet, the judges say yes or no. And you have to have a majority of yeses to make the list. In theory, it is the tie-breaking vote if the team of eight, if there's four and four. But I didn't have to do that this year, I don't think, for any of them. But we've had some close ones where there was five and three, and there were some close votes. But you have to actually have a majority to get onto the list. And that's it. I mean, it just takes some time because people are busy and have to actually think about if these ETFs have changed year after year, if they're still relevant for people's portfolios. And then we go through all these different categories. The one category that is particularly interesting to me, and I think to a lot of people, is this desert island picks. So that allows our judges to kind of pick one that they like, that some of them are a little bit out there that we don't do sector funds. We're not picking that. But for that particular category, someone can. Some pick lists, ETFs that are already on the list. This is basically if they're trapped on a desert island, here's the one ETF I bring with me. Some people say, you know, desert island is something, you know, a little bit off the beaten path. But in those cases, the judges kind of pick something individually. But otherwise, we're trying to get this kind of collective yay or nay to the picks. And while you were talking there, I tried pulling up the actual guide so that we can follow along on the screen. Do you guys see yeah. my screen now with yeah. the judges listed there? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So if anybody watching the video version of it, these are the judges that were selected. You can see Ben is there as well as his colleague, Cameron Passmore. And if you go to the very top, you can see the different categories. So you can select which one you'd like to look into, and then you'll see the top ETFs there. So again, the link to this page is just right below this video. If you're watching on the summit, or buildwealthcanada.ca slash top ETF, all one word. And that will basically take you to this particular page. Okay, so perfect. Now, Brian, there are a lot of different investing strategies out there when you and the panelists are evaluating what the best ETFs in Canada are. What is the goal and strategy that you are all focused on? And what kind of investor is this top ETFs list for? So Money Sense is really geared towards, I would say, the average Canadian investor. And we're trying to provide options for people to have a long-term diversified portfolio of ETFs. Um, yes, Money Sense does kind of dig into stocks sometimes and economics. and But I've always kind of said, if Money Sense, you could probably just run one article on its homepage, you know, buy these you know, few ETFs, keep them for the long term, and we'll see you later. That obviously the advertising would be you know, limited if you just had one page. But that's really, I think, at the heart of what we're trying to get to. Here are some options to create a well-diversified long-term portfolio that will meet your goals and get you into retirement. And that's really where the basis is. And that's why we don't talk about sector funds. There's lots of amazing sector funds, interesting stuff out there. But when we're starting to get into some of these other things that are kind of outside of that diversified basket of stocks, then you are you know, introducing some different risks that MoneySense does talk about in some articles and allows people to kind of make their own investment decisions. But if we're trying to say, here are the kind of the core ETFs and the key ETFs for your portfolio, we don't kind of touch these sector ETFs that are kind of, you know, we put them over here, maybe one day we will, but it's really how do you build a core a portfolio with core ETFs. Sounds good. Yeah, it's a question I really want to ask because if someone approaches this from the angle of, oh, I want to 
dedicate my life to being a crypto investor. And then they go on this page and they're like, hey, where's all your crypto thing? You know, then they're going to be disappointed. Well, so it's worth, I think, getting this right out of the gate saying, look, I, this for the total market index investor. And sure. if I can add one thing, there was a discussion in the judging about adding some crypto stuff. So Fidelity has some crypto in some of their ETFs, and which could be interesting for some people, but we sort of decided we're just going to leave those out. That may change in another time. I mean, there's, you know, these all in one portfolios, there's lots of different kinds of assets and some of these things. And we're not opposed to having, you know, it's not just stocks and bonds necessarily. That was, you know, I think a little bit outside for people this year, that could change. But yes, you won't get a, you know, we didn't talk about purpose as pure ETF, Bitcoin ETF, although I should double check that nobody picked that for the, I think someone may have picked that for the desert island picks, but I'd have to confirm that. But yeah, otherwise, you're right, you're not getting kind of the sort of crazy options here. Mm -hmm, For sure. Awesome. So Ben, jumping to you, before we get into the results, what should someone do if they are holding a past top pick, and now they no longer see that pick on this year's list? So in other words, when should we actually really consider swapping to a completely different ETF if we already have a good diversified index portfolio in place? Yeah. So keeping in mind that the desert island picks are separate. I mean, those are change more year to year. I mean, it's kind of funny to watch, I think. Mm -hmm. So that aside, but the top picks, those tend to be pretty steady. There's not a lot of turnover in the top picks. And as Brian was just saying, those are intended to be low cost, long-term total market holdings. And I mean, one of the interesting things about the panel is that there are a lot of different perspectives and that does show up in the Desert Island picks, but everybody kind of agrees on what most investors should hold, at least as the core of their portfolio. Now, we add or remove a fund based on something like its fees being a little bit too, maybe the fees are high or low. I don't think we've ever done that actually, because all the fees tend to be so low. Anyway, if we add a new fund that has a one basis point lower fee or even a five basis point lower fee for an asset class, people have to keep in mind that two things. One, that on say a $100,000 portfolio, we're talking about tens of dollars, tens, like $10, not a lot of money on the fees. But then the other thing is that the cheapest provider is going to change from year to year or even month to month because these ETF providers are competing with each other. So if iShares is the cheapest for, I don't know, Canadian equity today, Vanguard might be the cheapest tomorrow. So I definitely wouldn't be turning your portfolio over, which can have other implications based on small differences like that. So, I mean, the list is pretty static, but if we do add something, it's probably not a reason to change to that holding. Sounds good. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. No one has a business like yours with all its strengths and challenges. This Small Business Month, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. With Indeed, you don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it with just Indeed. You can also find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. One thing that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place easy because it does the hard work for you. Sponsor job and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. And according to Talent Nest 2019, Indeed delivers eight times more hires in Canada than all other job sites combined. So start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at Indeed.com 
dot com slash build wealth. The offer is good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. And now back to the show. And that kind of leads me into my next question is when it comes to switching from one ETF to another, what are the trading costs that we need to be aware of? So the five to ten dollar trading commissions are one thing that I think most people are already familiar with. But what about the bid ask spread? You know, and how much of a cost impact does that have? And are there any other costs we need to be aware of when, for example, someone is tempted to switch ETFs because let's say a top pick for this year has a slightly lower MER? Yeah, I mean the explicit costs like the trading costs, the commission, if you pay them at your brokerage, those are worth considering for sure. But typically spreads and execution, but just trading execution tends to be more impactful than commissions unless you're trading very small amounts, in which case the commission can be significant. But even if you're paying $0 for commissions, the trading spreads are still a meaningful cost in a lot of cases, even more expensive than would have otherwise paid in commissions. The study that just came out looking at US brokerages, not a Canadian study, but I think it's still interesting. They found that the round trip cost of buying and selling a security ranged from seven basis points at the cheapest brokerage in their sample. They looked at, I think, six different brokerages up to 45 basis points wow. at the most expensive. So even at the lower end, seven basis points is can be meaningful depending on how much you're trading. But at the higher end, 45 basis points, that's pretty significant. And that's all in transaction costs. And I think that that 45 basis points was a commission-free brokerage. So all of those costs are on price improvement and spread and, and other implicit costs like that. Wow. That's unbelievable. I didn't think it would be that high. I mean, when you look at the largest three providers, so the iShares, the Vanguard, the BMO, I mean, when they're competing head to head, I mean, sometimes one might be up by, in a lot of cases, not all cases, but you know, maybe a couple basis points cheaper, like you know, like two, three basis points or something I remember seeing in the past. And so you're saying the bid ask spread basically, you know, you might switch because you see that you want to get the be able to say you got the cheapest one, but then you're actually sort of costing you more because of this bid ask spread. That's fascinating. Just trading execution costs, really. Oh, I mean, yeah. but if it's a one basis point savings in MER, it's going to take you a while to earn that back after the trading cost that you pay to do the switch. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. So let's get into the top Canadian ETFs. Brian, were you trying to say something? I there? just I, one thing. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, these are long-term holdings. So, you know, don't get too excited about trading these ETFs. You want to stick, probably good enough to just stick with the ones you have. So make a good case to make that switch if you need to switch. But again, like if you do make that switch once, that's something to kind of hang on to and for years. So just to keep that in mind. I think that's super important. But I think that one of the risks is that the total costs of ownership of these funds are going to change. So it's like kind of like what I said earlier, if VCN is the cheapest Canadian ETF today, it might be XIC tomorrow. So making what seems like a long-term decision based on current costs can become irrelevant very quickly because all of these fund providers are competing with each other. Mm -hmm. For sure. The way I've tackled that myself is you make the best decision you can at the time. And if one ends up becoming superior, let's say a few years down the road, because it's lower, it's cost even more. And for some reason, the other one didn't follow with their MER, then okay, if I have new money to put in, fine, then I'll use that new sort of top one because its fees are a little bit less. And it's still very comparable to the one I currently have, but I never actually sell the one that I already have, because why incur the bid ask spread? And especially if you're doing a taxable account, right? Like there's actually going to be tax implications here. You don't want to do that all because you want to save a couple of basis points, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't mention taxes. That's a great point. And if you're trading in a taxable account, 
That's another cost to overcome. Yeah. That can be huge, right? Someone tries to save three basis points because one provider just lowered it a little bit and then they take a tax hit because they, whoops, I forgot that in a taxable account, we're actually going to be realizing these capital gains now. And then they get a really big surprise when it's tax time. So yeah. Okay. Awesome. That can go the other way too, though. If someone's in a capital loss position, right? then it could be actually pretty interesting to switch out if there's an opportunity to to do a tax loss harvest Mm -hmm. and switch into a lower cost ETF that of course is tracking a different index. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. There's always a tax loss harvesting uh, option. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. Let's jump into the top key ETFs. Can you guys see on my screen the list here from MoneySense? Yes. Perfect. All right. So here we're looking at total market index ETFs that give you exposure to the Canadian stock market. That's the ones we're going to focus on here during our conversation. I noticed that all three of the topics really have the same management fee. We've got BMO with ZCN, Vanguard with VCN, and iShares with XIC. Ben, BMO's ZCN and iShares XIC look almost identical to me. Are there any key differences between these two that you think we should be aware of? They're pretty much identical. I mean, yeah. I don't know how you would choose between them unless you like that one was from a Canadian issuer, but you might also like that the other one's from a larger ETF issuer. So I, I don't know. Okay. I've got to hear you say that in a way because I was trying to figure out, you know, is there some key difference? And I couldn't find one. I thought maybe Ben would know, but it seems like we're in alignment on that one. Not that I know. I, even with VCN, which is a bit different, I think all of these total market Canadian ETFs are pretty much the same. Like we can nitpick and find, I mean, VCN actually, it's kind of interesting because VCN did used to have some more material differences. I don't know why Vanguard did this when they launched that product, but they used to track the FTSE Canada all cap index, but not the domestic index. And that's important because the domestic index removes things like foreign ownership caps on stocks. So they used to not track that index, which meant I think the biggest exclusion or reduction in holdings was on telecoms because Canada has foreign ownership caps on telecom companies. So VCN used to reflect that in the index. They changed that, I think, in 2020 to the domestic index. So now they, anyway, there's just a weird little nuance in the way that they had set up the index they had chosen to set up VCN. And it did actually result in some underperformance because I guess telecoms did well over the period that they were underweight. They also used to exclude Shopify, but it's in there now because FTSE had it in there. US index. But even with all that, the returns of all these Canadian equity indexes have been extremely close and even more so now because BCN is tracking the domestic index and does include Shopify. Yeah. Even if we say like, yeah, hey, look, there are actually some differences, which there were in the past, the returns of all of these things are going to be so close. Mm -hmm. And I guess the main, you know, in that category, there's, you know, the low volatility ETF there that was included. So that's a bit different, but yeah, I think I've always wanted to know how advisors choose between kind of iShares, BMO, uh, Vanguard, because they do all seem similar to me. There's no obvious answer. I mean, historically, we're not crazy about VCN because of the way that it was set up, but I think it's changed now. When we get to US equity, there's nuances with XUU as well. But I think in all those cases, we're splitting hairs and Mm -hmm. you would not really hesitate to use VCN or XIC and they'd both be good tax loss selling pairs for each other. Of course, you couldn't use ZCN and XIC because they're tracking the same index. Gotcha. And then the other thing that jumped out at me is that Vanguard's VCN has fewer holdings. So when I checked the chart here on, on MoneySense, it had 181 versus 240 compared to the iShares and BMO ETFs. You kind of already answered this, but would this be considered a concern 
by implying that Vanguard ETF is less diversified than the BMO and iShares versions. Like, why would you go with Vanguard when you can get more holdings and be more diversified by instead holding XIC or ZCN? Yeah, more diversification is always better than less. I mean, you're getting an extra basis point on the R for the Vanguard fund. Maybe that's worth something. But the reason that Vanguard has fewer holdings is because of the way that FTSE does their index construction. So somebody might go and read FTSE methodology for index construction and say, oh, I actually like what they're excluding. That would be the most logical reason to choose the Vanguard fund over one of the others is based on the index, the underlying index methodology. But keep in mind that like the, while it does have fewer holdings, the holdings that are excluded from VCN are a tiny part of the overall Canadian stock market. So it shouldn't lead to much tracking error and any tracking error is going to be random. So you could end up better off based on the tracking error from VCN based on what it excludes. And even in that case, it's going to be like basis points. It's not going to be a big difference. Yeah, to your earlier point, how all three had actually very similar performance if you compare them side by side. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Brian, another topic in this category is Horizons HXT ETF, which covers the S&P TSX 60. You mentioned in the article that it's tax efficient and has a rock bottom 0.04% fee after the rebate until at least December 31st, 2022. And for anybody you know, following along, you can see that written right here on the table. Can you explain what this rebate is and why did you say at least December 31st, 2022? Yeah, I had to actually look this up again because it's been a little while since we put this together, but it looks like they're giving 0.03% rebate, just you know, taking it off or giving it back as a looks like a promotional item that they're doing. And after it says on the website until at least December 31st, 2022. So in theory, it could go back up. They may not offer that rebate anymore. So that's really all that's going on there. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, something more interesting than that. Sounds good. It sounds good. Yeah, I just want to kind of get some clarification yeah. on that. Because usually you don't see these little like no, no, <laughs> these you little don't. side notes, um, right? So yeah. when you mentioned that, I thought, oh yeah, like that's interesting. I kind of forgot about that because yeah. you usually don't see that. Yeah. Gotcha. And then Ben Horizons has this unique tax structure with some other ETFs like HXT, for example, where you don't receive the dividend payout as income, but instead they get added to the fund so that you instead receive more capital gains. And I realize that I'm maybe oversimplifying things a bit here, but essentially by holding an ETF like HXT in a personal taxable or corporate trading account, some Canadians save money by reducing their clawbacks when it comes to things like CPP, OAS, the Canada Child Benefit, CCB, and avoid the high tax rate when investing in a corporate account you know, that they could get on the dividends. Now, in the past, the government closed this, you know, what I would consider a loophole, but then Horizons figured out a way to restructure their ETFs so that Canadians can still get these tax savings. And so this raises the concern of, what if the government changes things again, closes the second loophole, and then Canadians that were holding Horizons ETFs like HXD start selling off ETFs like HXD in large quantities because it no longer has this tax advantage? In this scenario, would the ETF plummet in price or no, because you know it's holding the underlying assets still, and so that wouldn't actually happen? Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know what would happen to the price. Typically with ETFs, it's not going to be too, too much of an issue where they're going to get pushed too far below their net asset value because of the way that the ETF market works. I think it's worth pointing out that the swap-based ETFs from Horizons, they used to be based on a really innovative structure that it's pretty interesting. We had Jamie Purvis from Horizons on a couple of years ago now, I guess, in episode 49 of our podcast. And he went into detail of how the swap structure worked. It was pretty interesting. 
Uh, but he also noted at that time that it was looking like that loophole or whatever you want to call it might be closed. And then it was closed, as you mentioned. The way that Horizon solved that was by rolling those fund assets into a corporate class structure, which is different. So the corporate class structure has been around for a long time. It makes claims of tax efficiency. It's not always as tax efficient as it is pitched as being because any net income inside of the corporate class is taxable at the general business rate. And just the way that all of the taxes work, it can end up putting you in a less tax efficient position than if you had just earned capital gains or even Canadian dividends from a typical trust structure. So Horizons has moved into that corporate class setup, which it was smart the way that they did that. And I think that they had that ace up their sleeve well before their previous structure got legislated out. I don't see the same issue happening. I don't see the legislative risk that existed with the swap-based structure also existing for corporate class because that structure has been around for ages. And it's not as obviously tax advantageous as what they were previously doing. Not too worried about it going away, but I'm also not as... The, the previous structure was obviously very tax efficient. And I was always worried about it being legislated out, which did happen. I'm not as worried about the corporate class structure being legislated out, but I'm also not as convinced of its obvious long-term tax efficiency. Horizons basically has to make sure that all the funds in that class are not all together are not earning net income, which is, I mean, it's kind of hard if you're managing investment products, unless mm -hmm. you have products that you expect to lose all the time, which is actually an interesting argument in Horizons case, because they do have some pretty niche products that are not really designed for long-term holding. They're designed for short-term bets. Maybe we should expect those to lose a lot and the people in their index products can benefit from that. Anyway, so I think what they did is very smart. I'm not worried about it going away. I'm more worried about net income inside of that corporate class affecting the holders of those funds. Gotcha. And then kind of a follow-up to that question, and also just on a broader level, I know when this happened before with that kind of first loophole, I'll call it, did a press release where they said, okay, we may actually have to close down some of these ETFs, depending on you know, whether they're able to figure out a way around it or not. And then I get similar questions from non-Horizons ETF holders saying, well, yeah, what if iShares or Vanguard or whoever what if they close down my ETF down the road? What happens there? Am I going to be hurt because you know I held it on to the very, very end? They decide to close it, and now there's this like you know mass exodus. What do you say to those investors that are concerned about you know a fund closing down that they have a lot of money in? Well, I mean, the the worst part of that situation is that you might have to pay capital gains tax on an asset you've been holding for a long time, but the risk of like losing all of your money or taking a big loss based on an ETF shutting down, I don't think that's as much of a concern. But for sure, having a forced taxable disposition on a fund that you own before you wanted to, I mean, that's not ideal. So I think that's a good argument not to hold smaller ETFs or more niche ETFs because those do close down often enough. Larger, like the total market ETFs that are in the top picks, those tend to stay open for a long time and especially the larger ones. I don't think that if an ETF closes down, it's not a disaster. You're not going to lose everything, but it is something that's worth considering when you're selecting ETFs. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a taxable piece that would only really apply if you held those investments in a taxable account, right? Yeah, correct. So for like HXT, the Horizons ETFs that we we're talking about, typically you would be holding those in a taxable account. So in that specific case, 
that would be the main concern. And that was always the point that I raised in the previous swap structure was like, listen, it's tax efficient now, but if you're forced to realize a capital gain earlier than you wanted to, then a lot of that tax efficiency can evaporate relative to holding something else for a longer period of time, even if you are paying tax on the dividends. And that risk did materialize, but Horizons was able to use the Section 85 rollover, which is just a a thing in the tax code where they can move assets into a corporation without realizing a capital gain. So they were able to take advantage of that to not have that taxable disposition. Now, if they had to shut down the corporate class structure for some reason, I don't think that that, there's not a whole lot that they could do on round two. Gotcha. So as a sort of DIY key investor, if an ETF does close down and we're holding that in a taxable account, we're basically in a way forced to sell it essentially, right? And that's when we could realize the you know capital gain, capital losses, you know, and it's sort of totally out of our control at that point. Would that's fair to say? Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sounds good. And then the other concern with HXT is that it only has 60 Canadian companies. And I think most Canadians, myself included, would rather go for you know the total market approach with an ETF like ZCN, where they are now getting the entire SP TSX index with its 240 you know, stock holdings. Do you think this trade-off is worth it where you're getting less diversification, but some potential tax savings and or clawback reduction on government benefits because you're holding a Horizons fund, which doesn't actually issue dividends? Yeah. I did a video on the swap-based ETFs a while ago. I actually took that the only video I've ever taken down from my YouTube channel because the it just became irrelevant when they changed the structure. Okay. But that the two points that I made were that you might be forced to realize the taxable disposition earlier than you would have otherwise, which has an implied cost. And then the other one was that you're omitting small cap stocks and mid cap stocks. And I approximated a cost for that. I think that is problematic. Large cap stocks have done well recently. Well, up until very recently, but the last 10 years or so, they've done better than smaller companies. So people look at indexes like the S&P 500 or the TSX 60, and it looks fantastic in recent returns, but in the long run, you do expect mid caps and you do expect small caps to outperform. So omitting those from from a portfolio, I don't think is ideal. Now, you could make the argument that you could stick HXT in a taxable account and then hold small and mid cap in your tax sheltered accounts and arrive at the same overall asset allocation. I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument. But as a an individual holding, I would rather be more diversified into small and mid caps than what you get with something like HXT. Mm-hmm. And gotcha. just being, I don't think it's a counter argument of any sort. And I'm not, a, I, Ben, you would know better so why this might be happening. But I did just check on Google Finance and HXT is up 60% over the last five years, while ZCN is up about 32%. So there is a difference there in quite a big difference in the return. So I don't know, just some interesting thing to point out. Yeah. So on Google Finance, it's probably giving the price return. So a lot of the regular ETFs returns would have been distributed as income which means its price return will be lower. But because HXT is inside of the fund reinvesting all distributions, you're going to see the total return. So it's really comparing a price return on one side to a total return on the other side. And probably also contributing to that is the fact that large caps have outperformed over the last five years. But the bigger piece of that is going to be the price return versus the total return. Gotcha. Yeah. And I know what usually for me, like I like to go to Morningstar because there you can actually see they'll actually include the dividend payouts as well. And then so then you can compare total return to total return. Whereas yeah, I find like if I use some of the other providers, yeah, they'll just do the price to show you what the mm-hmm. changes in price, like what Ben was saying. And then you're kind of not getting the whole picture. Is there other resources like that you like to use that actually includes total return? The Morningstar has been the best one that I've been able to find for total return numbers. 
I use Morningstar Direct, which is their institutional product. But mm-hmm. yeah, Morningstar tends to be pretty good. Awesome. Cool. I mostly use Capital IQ. They give a free journalist a subscription, which is oh, that's cool. For me. So yeah, so I usually use that. Awesome. I get a lot of questions from listeners of the show. If I know of a good organization or person that can help them optimize their finances, do their financial planning, and answer any questions that they may have. I spend a lot of time researching on who I can actually wholeheartedly recommend and use myself when it comes to financial coaching. And as you know, there is a lot of conflict of interest here in Canada where you can easily fall into the trap of going with a financial planner or financial advisor, thinking that they have your best interest at heart, but really they're just trying to persuade you to buy some expensive investment product from them so that they can earn their hefty commission. So the organization that I personally use and recommend for coaching, financial planning, and optimization is called Enriched Academy. They are as legitimate as it gets. They actually coach Canadian police officers and have actually been implemented by the government of Alberta to be in their schools teaching financial literacy. And they're already in over 400 schools and colleges. They don't sell any investment products, so they are totally unbiased, which is a key reason why I decided to take part in their coaching myself, as their advice is 100% geared towards benefiting you, as opposed to trying to earn some commission on the side. So the special page that they set up for Build Wealth Canada listeners to get a free one-on-one live assessment call is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash enriched. That's buildwealthcanada.ca ca slash enriched. Give it a shot. It's free. There's no obligation or anything like that if you try them and don't think it's a good fit. I hope you give it a shot. And now back to the show. So Brian and Ben, most Canadians, they do have a home country bias when it comes to their investment portfolio. And even when you look at asset allocation ETFs from all the major providers, they definitely hold more of Canada than Canada's percentage of the world equity markets. Why is that? And what is your stance on what percentage Canadian stocks should make up of a Canadian DIY investor's investment portfolio on the equity side. Yeah. So we do overweight Canadian equities in the portfolios that we manage for our clients. I think that it makes clearly, I think it makes sense to do that. The, The biggest single reason is tax efficiency. So Canadians get a credit in taxable accounts. Canadians get a credit for taxes that corporations pay effectively. We pay lower tax on Canadian dividends than we do on foreign dividends. And the reason is that the corporations already paid some of the tax. Whereas a US or international company, they're also paying tax, but we're not getting a credit for the taxes that they pay. So we end up paying kind of, I guess, paying double tax on foreign dividends because you're paying tax to their home country through the corporation. And then you're also paying tax without getting any credit for that to Canada. So tax efficiencies probably the single strongest argument. There there are other arguments like the behavioral argument that Canada this year is doing much better than global markets. Canadian investors are more likely to be aware of that and might feel sad because they didn't have Canadian equities. I'm not as crazy about that behavioral argument. And then the other one that I think is pretty interesting, we interviewed for our podcast, Gus Sauter, who was the, the CIO at Vanguard for decades, like through their massive growth until I think 2012. And we asked him about home country bias and the argument that he made was different. He said that you are hedging your future consumption to an extent by owning domestic stocks, because if your home country has unexpectedly strong economic growth over a period of time, you might expect the price level to increase in your country and owning domestic stocks is somewhat of a hedge against that. 
kind of interesting. You mean like an inflation hedge, kind of? Is that what you're referring to? Effectively, yeah. Mm. A consumption hedge in your home country. I haven't thought too much about that since he said it, but I did think it was an interesting argument. But my number one argument by far is the tax efficiency of Canadian equities for Canadian investors. When Sorry, you, can I ask you a question? When you invest for your clients, what is that breakdown typically of kind of Canadian versus you know international or US? Yeah. So we do a third in Canada and then we market cap weight the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I think the issue goes back. I mean, from my perspective, and I come at this thing, you know, I'm not an advisor, so a little bit broader and just sort of, you know, when I write about things, it's just what to kind of things to watch out for. And I think historically Canadians like investing in Canadian stocks because you're supposed to invest in what you know. It's a lot more familiar to invest in RBC or TD than it is some of the US banks and or even other countries. But just, you know, if someone wants to sort of take a broader picture, you got to be careful though. I think in the past, people were way overweighted to Canadian stocks. I mean, we had sort of the the rules around investing in foreign um, equities, and that got pulled back years ago. And I think it took a while for advisors and for investors to get to make a shift and sort of realize we have a bigger world out there. But you know, you can't get really great technology stocks in Canada. I mean, Shopify is the biggest one that hasn't had a great year. Healthcare. So there's lots of industries where you can't get that exposure in Canada if you are invested in Canada you know, energy, financials, you're going to be overweight to that. So you just have to watch out for that. I think it's okay to be, you know, I think of the MSCI, what Canada's a 3%, makes up 3% of the MSCI all-country world index. So some people have said, well, maybe 3%. I think that's probably way too low, given that we are living in Canada, our money's in Canada. But at the same time, there's still a lot of people who might be 60% weighted to Canada and or even 50. And I think that might be a bit too high, given how well US markets have done. And I think, yeah, you know, you're kind of lucky this year that uh, Canadian markets have done well. That is from forces that's out of our control in, in a lot of ways. And so you can't make a bet on that. But I think so just be careful when you are investing in Canada that you're not too overweight. It's okay to be, I think, you know, that what Ben, what you said, that makes sense to me in that kind of allocation. But, you know, you want to have a diversified portfolio of international Canadian stocks. Yep. There's particularly with Canadian investors who are investing in dividend-only stocks. I think that's a an extreme example of what you're saying, where Canadian investors who are focused on dividend yield as their primary criteria for evaluating investments can end up with not only concentration in Canada, but also concentration within the already concentrated industry uh, composition of Canada because some industries just pay higher dividend yields than others. So totally agree. Home country bias is a problem in general to an extent. I think some home country buys can make sense. But I mean, I saw a I saw a statistic when Russia's markets were closed that the home country bias of the average Russian investor was like 96% or something in their in their portfolios, which obviously was was not ideal for them. And I, I don't remember what the statistic was for Canada, but it was still high. Like I think it is still around 60% of for the average Canadian portfolio, which I 100% agree is uh, is too high. You also made me think of something else, Brian, when you were talking. We had Eugene Fama on our podcast a while ago in episode 200. He's a pretty smart guy. His argument for home country bias, and it's interesting, actually, if we talked to people like Gus Sauter, Vanguard's CIO, Gene Fama, who's the father of modern finance, uh, and they both argue for some home country bias, like Warren Buffett does too. Jack Bogle used to argue for home country bias. Fama's argument, which was very logical, as you would expect from someone like Gene Fama, was that expropriation does not show up in the returns data. So when you look at foreign 
market returns from the perspective of a Canadian investor or from the perspective of a US investor, one of the things that you're not typically seeing is expropriation. And that can lower returns for foreign investors in various countries. So I think that's another interesting and economically logical argument for some home country bias. Can you define expropriation, Ben? Yeah. So I I mean, Russia is maybe an interesting example where they have recently nationalized or at least taken over a whole bunch of foreign businesses and rebranded them with new, slightly different Russian names. But if you're, I mean, Russia is maybe a bad example because I think investors lost lost everything, at least if they were in Russian index funds. But yeah, so if a foreign country takes the assets of foreign investors, that of course reduces your your returns. That that will not tend to happen to domestic investors. So Canadian investors hopefully don't have to worry about the Canadian government taking their investments. But if you're investing in foreign countries and there's an international conflict like we've seen recently, there is some risk of your assets being taken or at least reduced in value. Gotcha. Thank you. And just to make sure I understand your previous comment about the tax efficiency and why it's okay to be have a bit of a home country bias here as Canadians. Are you saying it kind of goes on two levels? On the one end, it's you're not paying the withholding tax if you're holding Canadian equities, for example, versus you would be if you're holding you know, international US. And then the other one would be just the dividend tax credit that you get in taxable accounts. And that's kind of the other tax advantage. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I, I didn't mention foreign withholding tax, but you're you're absolutely right. Okay. Uh, the, the only way to get around that one is if you hold a US listed ETF of US securities, then you don't pay any foreign withholding tax. But otherwise, in registered accounts, TFSAs or RSPs for foreign non-US stocks, you're paying withholding tax, whereas you're not paying that to own Canadian stocks in a registered account. Gotcha. So those are kind of the two sort of from the tax side, why one may favor the home country bias in Canada, at least a little bit. Um, okay, that makes total sense. Awesome. Thank you. And XUU still appears to be the favorite here among the panelists as far as you know, Canadian-listed US total market index ETFs go. The runner-up seems to be VUN, which is comparable in terms of US stock market representation, but mm-hmm. has a higher fee of 0.15% versus XUU's really low fee of 0.07%. Do you guys have any thoughts and comments on this one? I'm going to, I'm just going to clarify something. This actually, this order is not in preference of best to worst or like top to bottom. Um, It's just was on the Excel sheet this way. Um, So all of these have been voted in as choices. There are differences in the US and we have some low volatility. QQQ is, you know, more tech heavy. So there is definitely differences here than there was more difference than on the Canadian one. So if you have some sort of preferences to where you want to invest in the US to add to, you know, your diversification, there are some different choices here, but we're not sort of making a recommendation here uh, that XUU is the best one just because it's on the top of the list. Gotcha. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So it's not a ranking from the one at the top is number one. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, Did you have anything to add, Ben, to this one? Well, for the record, (laughs) I voted against the low volatility ETFs. I voted against QQQ, voted against the NASDAQ 100. They clearly got in because the majority liked them. But just for the record, since I'm the one that gets to be here, I uh, <laughs> I, I voted against, I voted against them. Why? Why? Well, for low volatility, it's a bit of a complicated answer. I, I, we actually, uh, John, in the prior year, did include the comment to the specific commentary that I had on low volatility. I guess people can read that. I don't want to go. In, I don't want to take up too much time <laughs> going into the details about why QQQ and the Nasdaq 100. I mean. Investing in high-priced large-cap stocks, which is what you're getting in those securities, is not a good thing in terms of expected returns in the, in the long run. They've done exceptionally well in recent history, 
But those types of stocks, large cap growth stocks, don't tend to perform well in the in the very long run. And of course, they've gotten obliterated recently. But recency bias aside, large cap growth stocks tend to underperform smaller and lower priced companies. It's not something that I would consider to be a good holding for a long-term investor. And I think I think some of the argument there with from other judges was I'm sort of the opposite. I mean, maybe not. I don't know if it was based on the actual numbers, but or or I, this idea that a lot of the stocks in QQQ, which is not just tech, but largely tech, you know, will still be big performers going forward, and they're having a bad year now. And it was interesting because when we did this earlier this year, tech stocks were starting to kind of crater, but still kept it on the list because there were some judges who felt that. There is more long-term potential here. These are kind of game-changing companies, and they're still going to outperform. You know that remains to be seen. So, for investors looking at this, probably for a you know just a broad-based U.S. fund, you have your you know your total market XUU probably is a is a good choice. But if you want to maybe go a little bit more specialized, you could do QQQ, depending on kind of where you think those stocks will go. Yeah. As a speculative bet, I think that can make sense. I think as a increase expected returns, I would be going, and this is what my desert island picked, I would be going toward lower priced and smaller companies. I think there's a massive misconception about the relationship between company success or economic growth in a sector and returns. I did a some analysis recently where I compared the software industry index from Ken French's uh, database since 1971, which is sort of the unofficial start of the information technology revolution, compared that to a railroad index over the same time period. And railroads absolutely obliterate (laughs) software in terms of investment returns, even though the railroad as a percentage of the global or the US market in that case shrank and the size of the software industry grew, their returns to investors were much, much higher for the railroad industry, which was the shrinking industry. And that's historically, that's, that's how things tend to go. There's a story there that we can write for money sense. I think (laughs) happy to do it. I can, uh, I can share the data with you if you want. (laughs) Very cool. All right, guys, let's jump into international stocks. Can you give us your thoughts on these while touching on some of the nuances when it comes to choosing the different combinations from the different providers when it comes to emerging and developed international markets? Sure. I can quickly start with that. I think sort of the conversation that the judges had here, and you can see in some of these, you know, there's differences between holding China and not holding China, all country, you know, excluding Canada, more options on on emerging markets. So you can kind of pick where you think you need to fill out your portfolio here. The China discussion was interesting. So you, you do see some here where it does include China, somewhere it doesn't. And really, you sort of have to think about what you think China is going to go. Is it going to be, you know, continue to be this big grower and big uh, contributor to uh, returns and uh, returns in emerging markets or not, um, and that's is up to the investor to make. So I sort of beginning of this whole discussion talking about how we just want to do these kind of core portfolios, but there are some nuances here that you may have to think about when you're investing and talking to your advisor about that could make you think about kind of where you want to make a bet. And Money Sense doesn't love making bets, but we like to give some options, so that's why we've included some of these. But you'll have to kind of think about where you want to go and how and what else you have in your portfolio. I mean, you can make a portfolio out of just, you know, a couple ETFs, right? So do you have space for just an emerging market? Do you need something a bit broader? That will kind of depend on the portfolio makeup that you have. Yep. It kind of ties into what we were just talking about with the the railroads example. China's economic growth is, is not super strongly related to its expected returns. So I think that's always an important consideration for investors. And actually there's, 
a couple of papers that have looked at the relationship between economic growth, like GDP growth at the country level, per capita GDP growth, I believe. The correlation between that and stock returns has historically been negative. So even if we take the position that China is going to be a high growth economy, which it has been historically and it has underperformed historically, but even if we say, yeah, I think China is going to grow economically, that's that's actually not a reason to invest in it. And the opposite may even be the reason to invest. If you think it, look at China and think, I think it's going to it's going to contract economically over the next twenty years, that may even be a reason to invest. Although I wouldn't be making that bet. I think the one important note on a lot of these is that there are differences in the classifications of emerging and developed markets. So if investors are looking at these funds and saying, well, I like the iShares developed markets, but I like the FTSE, the, the Vanguard emerging markets, mixing and matching can result in doubling up or excluding certain countries. The biggest example is South Korea. It's the second largest emerging market, I believe, by market capitalization after China. If you follow MSCI's indexes, it's an emerging market. If you follow FTSE, it's a developed market. So if you mix and match, that's where you can get into some trouble. I think Poland is the other one that's classified differently by MSCI and, and FTSE. So the easiest way to think about it is just sticking with one provider for developed and emerging markets. Or if you want to be more, you wanted to mix and match providers, you've got to make sure they're tracking indexes from the same family, the same index provider, because there are different classifications. One interesting point on these emerging market ETFs is that ZEM from BMO I think it's large and mid-cap, it excludes small caps, whereas XEC is total market. But ZEM holds typically securities directly, which reduces one layer of withholding tax, which can be very valuable. It sometimes holds ETFs, so it's not perfect. But anyway, so you're giving up small cap exposure, but you're getting increased tax efficiency, which is it's it's worth considering and choosing an ETF. And when you talked about sticking with the same brand, if you are doing a combination thing, I just thought maybe we can give the give an example. I was highlighting this one before. So like something like XCF, XCC, where you've got the emerging markets and you've got the the develop, international developed. And then what was the Vanguard one? I'm just trying to find it here. Down below there, VE and VIU. There you go. So this would be the other sort of combination where you've got the emerging markets is one of them and then developed is the other one. And so now you're basically take, getting that whole pie, essentially, for lack of a better word. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for your insights on this one. And tell us again where we can see more of your work and your analysis. And for everybody watching, if you did want to see some of the top picks for some of the other categories of the remit, they mentioned the desert picks before. We've got ones for asset allocation ETFs and fixed income. You can go there to check it out. So again, the link is right below the video if you're watching it on the summit, or you can go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash top ETF. And that will basically redirect you to sort of this master, you know, homepage here on Money Sense, And then you can pick the category, as you can see here, which one you would like. So with that said, thanks guys for coming on. Thanks for sharing your insights. And uh, yeah, tell us again where we can see more of your work and analysis. Yeah, I think go to moneysense.ca. I mean, that's where uh, we want you to be reading everything there. The ETF list is there. You can compare it to past lists. And there's all sorts of great information there from myself and from many others. I've got, yeah, my YouTube channel is just by my name, Ben Felix, and then the PWL Capital website. I'm also also there. And then our podcast has a website, rationalreminder.ca, where you can find all of the transcripts and past episodes and all that kind of stuff. We do also have an online community, which is the URL is community.rationalreminder.ca. There's about 7,500 people in there. Very active discussion. And it's a, it's a very, very nice part of the internet. It's not like a 
I don't know. It just it just feels different from uh, from Reddit. I don't know if you ever go in there, Cornell. But it's, uh, Maybe you can take over Twitter then when Elon Musk backs out. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that sounds great, guys. I'll obviously we'll link out to this guide, but also yeah, your other resources and the community uh, band that you mentioned as well. That'll be great to link out to as well. And thanks for providing that uh, to Canadian investors. Well, I, I guess you have an international crowd as well, but you guys are you're in Ottawa personally, right? And then PWL is a Canadian company as well, right? That's correct. Yep. Gotcha. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Definitely check out below the video for all the links. And if you're listening to this on podcast in podcast format, it will be in the show notes as well. Thanks again, guys. It was great uh, doing this again this year. Thank you. Thanks. All right, guys. Take care. Bye. All right. A big thanks to Brian and Ben for coming on. Don't forget to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you enjoyed the episode. And that link again for the written version of the guide on the Money Sense site is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash moneysense. And a big thanks to Indeed for sponsoring this episode. No one has a business like yours with all its strengths and challenges. This Small Business Month, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. With Indeed, you don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it with just Indeed. You can also find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. Indeed's hiring platform helps you easily schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. And if you hate waiting, according to Indeed data, candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three and a half times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search. One thing that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place easy because it does the hard work for you. Sponsor a job and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. And according to Talent Nest 2019, Indeed delivers eight times more hires in Canada than all other job sites combined. Start hiring now with a $100 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at indeed.com slash build wealth. Offer good for a limited time. Again, you can claim your $100 credit now at indeed.com slash build wealth. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.